We're here now in Acts chapter 7. We come to uh, really um, an amazing and, and f- kind of a, a shifting point in the book of Acts. We come to the point that, uh, that we see Stephen, the one who we were introduced to in the previous chapter, uh, who has been presented as a servant of the church. He's been appointed for this purpose. And then uh, through, through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, was preaching the word of God, accomplishing great signs and wonders. And we come now to this portion in Acts chapter 7 where he gives what is oftentimes called Stephen's speech or what I will oftentimes refer to as Stephen's sermon because indeed this was a, a sermon that Stephen is delivering here in Acts chapter 7. And this is, in, in one sense, a kind of a difficult passage to preach. I found myself as I was preparing, as I was thinking through how I was going to take this text and break it down and, and, and work with it as I, as I preach, as you can probably see if you have the text in front of you, this speech is a very long speech. It's a very long sermon. In fact, it's basically this whole chapter, over 50 verses, in which Stephen lays out his, his case in this chapter. He preaches this sermon or delivers this speech. And so, in one sense, there's a, there's a right purpose in taking the, the sermon as a whole and covering it all together as one, because that's how it was delivered. It was delivered by Stephen with the intention of serving a singular purpose as he was standing before the Sanhedrin, before these Jewish leaders. And so there is always a risk in taking a a sermon or a speech and breaking it down into parts. But uh, my hope today is that as we we stick to and understand the main purpose of Stephen's writing in this overarching sermon throughout this whole chapter, that we can take it in sections and parts and hopefully, as we come to the conclusion at the end, over the next couple weeks, we will not have lost sight of his main point, but in my, my hope and my prayer is that we will understand it more clearly, more deeply, because we've taken it piece by piece and one bite at a time. And so that's how we're going to tackle it. This is, as you can see, part one of our study in Stephen's speech. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And so if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word today. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt 
and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and ask you for your help and your guidance today. We ask for insight and understanding to be granted to us by the Holy Spirit. Lord, these are are fascinating and and interesting details, Lord, but we are coming today hoping for more than just entertainment, for more than just knowledge to be granted, but Lord, we are coming today to hear the word of the Lord as it is proclaimed. And so, Lord, I pray that as your word is proclaimed today, you would bless it, that you would bless the hearers, you would help us to see clearly what you have shown us here in the book of Acts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Here in Acts chapter 7, we see demonstrated for us uh, a principle that's been made known before, and that is the principle that if we do not understand our history, we're doomed to repeat it. What is fascinating about this, this speech, this sermon that, that Stephen delivers, is that as you can see, even in the text that we've read so far, Stephen is delivering a history lesson. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't real great at history growing up. Wasn't a big fan. In fact, anything beyond U.S. history, I was pretty well awash at because I found it to be boring. I found it to be difficult to remember the dates, to remember the significances, to remember all the names. To me, it felt so distant that it had no meaning, no bearing on my life. I think this is probably common for many of us as we've made our way through school and we learn history. We we might find certain cases, uh, certain stories to be interesting as much as they have entertainment value, but But as far as the purpose that they serve us, oftentimes we can find ourselves very distant and therefore very disconnected and and not liking history very much. But this is absolutely not the case with the Jewish people. In fact, for the Jews, especially for the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of their day, their history was integral to their life, to their religion, to their practice. It was their history, their lineage, their connection to these patriarchs that made them who they were, that solidified them in their Jewish identity. And so as as Stephen is now coming as he's preaching the sermon, he is coming and he is delivering what seems to us to be rather strange. He's delivering a history lesson. He's telling the Jewish people about their history. And as he's delivering this speech, this message, so far, everything that they have heard, these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they've been able to shake their head to and say, yep, that's our history. We get it. We understand it. But as we're going to see today that Stephen, in delivering this history lesson, has more in mind here than to just 
scratch the itching ears of his Jewish accusers. He has more in mind here of just appealing to the patriarchs to get himself out of this jam, out of this pickle that he's found himself in by preaching the word of God. Rather, he's going to point to their history and using that same guiding principle we already know, demonstrate that their lack of understanding of their own history has led them to repeat it or even to fulfill it. Stephen in this situation, if you remember from last week, is, is on trial before the Sanhedrin. He's facing false accusations that are being thrown at him, accusations of, of blasphemy. And what's amazing about this scene is that even though it begins with Stephen being placed on trial, what you'll notice as we, as we make our way through this chapter, even in this first section, these first 16 verses, is that Stephen does not speak like one on trial. Stephen doesn't speak like one who is being accused by others, but rather he begins to speak with wisdom and authority, and it becomes clear that Stephen here is serving as God's prosecutor. Stephen, in this instance, though he is kind of being put on trial by the Sanhedrin, turns things around and puts them on trial, brings accusations against them, and he does so even through their own history. He does answer their accusations that are made against him, these accusations of, of blasphemy and the like. But in the process, he appeals to Israel's history to demonstrate how they had fallen into idolatry and had ultimately rejected the promises of God as fulfilled in, as we know, Jesus Christ. He flips the script on them, really, and actually becomes the one calling out their sin and their rebellion as he now stands in front of the Sanhedrin. I think it would serve us well as we, as we think about this whole chapter as a whole. As I said, I don't want us to lose sight of the forest for the trees, right? I want us to make sure we understand fully and, and stay firmly rooted in the point that Stephen is making. And so I want us to go ahead and read, jump to the end of the sermon, kind of the concluding point that he makes. And I know that if you're a book reader, you'll know that this is kind of against the rules. You don't jump to the end and, and learn what's going to happen. But I think for, for us, as we study this speech, it's good for us to know ahead of time on the front end what it is that Stephen is leading to, what is the purpose of his writing. And we see that, we see the head of his sermon in verses 51 through 53, where he says, mind you, this is in front of the Sanhedrin who's accusing him. He says, 51 through 53, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Here we see what, what Stephen is eventually getting to in this sermon. And we're not going to necessarily get all the way there today, but we need to remember that this is what he is driving us to. This is the point he is ultimately making as he's laying out this history lesson for the Jews. As all good preaching should, this sermon by Stephen culminates with Christ. As he explains the Old Testament through the proper lens, and that proper lens is Christ. 
This is absolutely what he does in this speech. He spends the vast majority of his time giving a history lesson about the patriarchs, but concludes by pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises God had made to them and therefore indicting the Jews for the murder of God's righteous one. We see here a sermon that, frankly, is not like sermons that we like to hear today or even sermons that if we were to hear today, we would say there was something missing about that sermon. It was too mean. It was too harsh. Because what I just read for you, that's the end of the sermon. He doesn't go on after that and say, now if you would bow your heads and, and I want you, if, if you believed in Jesus today to raise your hand or to come forward and walk this aisle. He concludes with this statement. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You betrayed and murdered the righteous one. That's how his sermon concludes. If I were to get up and preach that sermon today, people would say, well, you were missing a little something, weren't you? And I think rightly so. I think to get up and preach his sermon and, and, and to leave out what I think to be essential, that is a call to repentance, a call to faith, sermon might be lacking. But Stephen, as directed by the Holy Spirit, and I do believe there was going to be more to come to this sermon, I don't think this was his intended end, but as we know, it's cut short by the reaction of these Jewish leaders when they hear this accusation. I think certainly the next thing that was to come out of his mouth was the hope and the grace that is available to those who repent and believe. I mean, that's the message throughout the book of Acts. That's the message throughout the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. But indeed, he's cut short. And this sermon is, is left for us here as we have it as a, ser as a sermon, as a speech of condemnation, of accusation. It's a hard teaching. But oftentimes it is a hard teaching to hard hearts that God uses in order to soften them. But let's get into the accusations that are being made. I think it'd be good to refresh ourselves based on what we talked about last week to understand exactly what it is that Stephen is now being accused of, that he is standing up and, and giving a defense of. We see in, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6 exactly what the accusations are made against him. In verse 13 and 14, and they, that is the Sanhedrin, set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So here's what the accusations being made is. Essentially, it's boiled down to two things. They're saying he's guilty of blasphemy. And he's guilty of blasphemy because he's spoken against two things. He's spoken against the temple and he's spoken against the law. This is the, these are the two things being referenced when they say that he, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place. What's the holy place they're talking about? It's the temple and the law, he says, or what is later called the customs that Moses delivered to us. The accusations, though falsely, being made against Stephen is that he is blaspheming because he is denigrating the temple and he's denigrating the law. And Stephen is going to deal with both of these accusations in his speech. But in this first section today, as I've said, we can't cover the whole thing today. We're going to take it one section, one bite at a time. And here in this first section, we're going to look today 
at how he deals especially with the issue of the temple. And this accusation that he is speaking against that holy place, the temple. And he offers some clarifying words about the temple and about the presence of God. And so that brings us to what I would consider to be the main idea of the text here in 1 through 6 and the main idea of my sermon today. And that is this, that the presence and glory of God are not confined to any particular place and they have never been. This is the main point that Stephen has illustrated here in the first 16 verses of this passage. In the first section of his sermon, if you will, as he deals with two specific characters from their history, he's going to make this point, that the presence and glory of God are not confined to any particular place, nor have they ever been. And he demonstrates this point by looking at two great figures in Jewish history, the first of which being Abraham. We see his appeal to Abraham in the first few verses. Look at verses two through four with me. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. We see here in, this, in these first few verses of Stephen's speech, a few things demonstrated. First of all, in the face of these accusations, Stephen could not have started his speech off any better. As he's facing the accusation of, of essentially blaspheming the temple, blaspheming the traditions, denigrating them, he's going to demonstrate by going all the way back to Abraham that he is absolutely not doing that. He's, his accusers call him a blasphemer who sought to reject Jewish heritage that they held so dearly. But in this first sentence, the first words out of his mouth, that's demonstrated to be false. Why? What does he say? Brothers and fathers, first of all, showing a great deal of respect and, and honor to this Jewish Sanhedrin, an honor we might say they absolutely did not deserve, but yet Stephen here, out of respect, shows that to them. But he goes on to say, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. This is an amazing and sort of, sort of stage-setting statement. What's our main idea? The presence of God is not confined to a particular place. He has just now, in his first sentence, declared that the glory of God, his presence, his glory, no less appeared to Abraham. In the temple? No. It appeared to him when he was living in the land of Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. We see here that immediately he is making his case, building his case. But more than that, what does he say about Abraham? He says, our father, Abraham. By no means was he seeking to distance himself from the patriarchs. Absolutely not. We already see in his, in his opening here, how he's dismantling these ideas that the Jews are throwing at him, these accusations that are being brought. And especially that the Jews, this idea that they had developed 
around the temple. Because the Jews had developed an idea surrounding the temple that was totally and completely false. In fact, it had moved into a form of idolatry. You see, the Jews so viewed the temple as connected to the presence of God that in their mind, the presence of God could only and did only exist within the temple. This was essentially their view of the temple, that God was was in this place, but was in this place exclusively. Now, if we understand the temple truly and rightly, we understand that indeed God's presence was found in the temple. And he had set up the temple and the tabernacle before that as a particularly unique place where God dwelt with his people and met with his people. And his presence was certainly there in a specific and unique way. But that by no means meant, as the Jews extrapolated it out, that his presence was in any way limited to that place. Indeed, that's not the case. And as we are teaching our children here at Redeemer Fellowship Church and we are catechizing them, we teach them this truth. This truth that seems amazing that the Jews had kind of lost sight of, we teach to our kids, or at least we should. In fact, what is one of the catechism questions that we're working through with our children? If you're a parent in here, you know at least a few of them if you're working through these with your children. And one of them is, where is God? You know what the answer is not? It's not the temple. It's not the church. It's not Jerusalem. What is the answer? Where is God, church family? Everywhere. That's right. God is everywhere. This amazing, huge reality that that the people of Israel had begun to lose sight of is something that we ought to be teaching our children. But instead, the Jews essentially idolized the temple to the point that when Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple, what did they equate it to? They equated it to blasphemy. As though if the temple were destroyed, God had nowhere to live, nowhere to exist. This gets at the heart of the problem that Stephen is now here addressing. As he's facing these accusations for doing exactly that, speaking the words that Jesus spoke, as he spoke and and declared that the temple would be destroyed, and indeed, he did. He said those things Christ did and Stephen did after him. But he's demonstrating the reality that it's not blasphemy, unless you have a false view of the temple. And so, beyond just just putting to to rest the accusations against him, he's going to get at the very heart of the problem that these accusations are rising out of. Stephen, in just a few words, has already demonstrated what? That the presence of God, the glory of God, appeared to Abraham long before the temple existed, even before he was in this land, the promised holy land. He appeared to him, not in the temple, but rather in a pagan land, and drew him out of that. Stephen's dismantling the false ideas of these men in such a subtle way, because he's literally recalling Jewish history, as I mentioned to you. What they have heard so far, none of them are going, that's not true. How dare you say that about Abraham? No. Every single thing he has said, they know to be true and accurate which also speaks to the great knowledge that Stephen had of God's word, a knowledge that he was putting to great use here in his speech. He was literally recalling to mind Jewish history and applying it and understanding it correctly as it actually happened. 
And it's amazing how this is going to lead to the end result here in his sermon. But he goes on in his discussion on Abraham in verses 5 through 8. He says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it. That is, God gave him no inheritance in the land. Not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land, belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Abraham is for us, as he has mentioned throughout the scriptures, the prime example of faith. If you look throughout the scriptures, you will be hard-pressed to find a better example of faith exercised than in the story of Abraham. And I know where our brains will immediately go, and rightly so, we'll go to the story of Isaac. After his, his promised seed, his heir was born, this one who was promised to him, and he waited for him so long, was born, what did God tell him to do? He said, I want you to take your son Isaac, the son of the promise. I want you to take him and sacrifice him on an altar. And shockingly to us, Abraham was prepared to do exactly that and was going to do exactly that as the New Testament writers tell us later because he even believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. That's how strong his faith was. But his faith is really demonstrated all throughout the story of Abraham. His faith is on display over and over again. It's why Hebrews 11 has such high praise to sing of of Abraham, this what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews, right? In Hebrews 11, 8 through 5, we read of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For... He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. One of the most amazing things about Abraham's faith, as we're seeing demonstrated for us in the book of Acts, is that his faith was built solely on the promises of God, not on the possession of those promises. This is the point that F.F. Bruce, a great commentator on the, the book of Acts, says he says, Abraham's faith was not one built on possession, but on promise and promise alone. Solely on the word of God as he had given it to him. Sealed by the covenant of circumcision, Abraham went his whole life never once seeing the promise of God revealed, except in the birth of his son Isaac. The very son who God told him to go and sacrifice, and he was prepared to do. We see a great demonstration of faith in the life of Abraham, and certainly one that instructs us today as the Lord leads and directs us and calls us to, to various things, whether directly through his scripture or, or through the church, we know that it can be very difficult to trust the Lord in those things. It can be very difficult to have a faith like Abraham and just follow the Lord based solely on his promises. But that's exactly what Abraham did, and he serves for us as this great demonstration. The Lord promised him an inheritance for his offspring, but only after they sojourned as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But even in this, Abraham was content to trust in God and in his promises. Why? Because Abraham knew something 
that Stephen was now telling the Sanhedrin they had forgotten. Abraham was content because he knew that God's presence and his glory was not tied to a particular place, but that just as he had revealed himself to him in his glory in Mesopotamia, his glory would be with him in the midst of the affliction that was to come. Even a 400-year affliction, Abraham knew it doesn't matter if we're in Egypt, if we're in Haran, if we're in Shechem. God is with us and his glory is with us. The reason for bringing up Abraham was to do more than just to recall this great figure from their history, but to show them the truth that he was teaching through his example. Rather than denigrating and distancing himself from Abraham as they had kind of been accusing him that he was putting down their heritage, that he was putting down the traditions, that he disdained the patriarchs, Stephen unites himself to Abraham, calling him our father, including himself in that, claiming that what he was teaching, and indeed what Christ taught, was the fulfillment, the culmination of what Abraham was longing for and looking for. He was not leaving his roots but rather returning to them. This is something I love to tell people when, when people talk about our church. We, I don't know if you know this, we're a Southern Baptist church. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC. But to people who like, are familiar with the SBC, oftentimes what they'll say is, you guys don't look like an SBC church. You're like some new form of Southern Baptist, right? You guys like, like the confessions and the creeds. You guys have a, a, an understanding of soteriology that doesn't look like the rest of the Southern Baptist Convention? You guys have a liturgy? What's that all about? And they'll oftentimes say things like, it's like you're, you're a new kind of Southern Baptist. But what I love to tell them is that, I, that that's not the case, actually. In fact, when the SBC was started, the majority of the churches, in fact, all of the churches and the church leaders at the time, held to the same kind of theology that we do held fast to the confessions, the historic creeds that had been delivered down from those who had come before us. And so it's kind of a, a fun thing that I get to do and give people just a short history lesson. It's like, no, actually, we're returning to our roots. All the other Southern Baptist churches, brothers and sisters, we love them. They're great. They're the new ones. They're the weird Southern Baptists. We're the OGs, right? We're the original Southern Baptists, as it was intended by God. This is what Stephen was doing. He was going back to the roots of Abraham, demonstrating that he didn't despise Abraham. He was no way casting him out as irrelevant or serving no purpose, but saying, Abraham is my root. I trace the story of redemption all the way back to Abraham and have come now to the place where we are beginning to see the promises made to Abraham fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He was showing that the presence of God is not bound to a place. It wasn't for Abraham, and it isn't for the people of Israel, and it isn't for him today or for us today. God is always with his people. Then he turns his attention after speaking for some time about Abraham, turns to another figure, and that is Joseph. In verse 9, he begins to talk about Joseph. Verse 9 and 10, he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. There are two points, I think, that, that we're intended to see from the story of Joseph, that we're intended to learn that he is seeking to draw out in this story. Two points. The first is a further establishing of the point that he's already made. A further establishing of the fact that God's presence is not bound, not limited to the temple or even a land or any particular place. In fact, as we see from the story of Joseph, God was with him. That's what he says here in verse 9. It says they were jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. In Egypt, another pagan land where God's presence was not intended to be, yet the text tells us he was there. In fact, if you read the story of Joseph throughout the book of Genesis, what are you going to see? Over and over and over again, but God was with him. When he was cast into the pit by his brothers, God was with him. When he was put in prison after being framed by Potiphar's wife, God there was with him. And when when he was brought up and glorified and and put in the place of Pharaoh's right hand, God was with him. And indeed, it was God that caused all that he did to prosper. We see as well God's sovereignty at work as he is with his people and as he is working through his people. We also see in his sermon that he distinguishes between the patriarchs and Joseph in verse 9. This is an interesting thing that he does. Notice in verse 9, he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. We see him sort of setting Joseph aside as unique, saying you have the patriarchs, our fathers, right? Your fathers, my fathers, and Joseph. He distinguishes between the two of them where the patriarchs are the antagonists in the story and Joseph, who is God's chosen one and the one whom he blessed. This is an important point. Because it leads us to the other thing that I think we ought to see and we ought to hear. And that he's driving home again, as we said, later on in the sermon. But we already see it here in the patriarchs. Stephen is tying the Jewish leaders, excuse me, he's tying the Jewish leaders to the patriarchs. And Joseph, he is demonstrating, serves as a type of Christ. Or a foreshadowing or a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. That Joseph serves, again, more in this story than just a a cool, reminiscent picture of what happened in the past. But he's doing something more here. He's saying the patriarchs are your fathers, and you are following in their line. Therefore, Joseph represents something else, but he is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ in this Old Testament story. And this becomes especially important as you read in verse 13, 11 through 13, where we read this. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Now, When you begin to read this story in the context as I've just laid it out, as Stephen is teaching it, that you have the patriarchs, those who he is tying to the Jews, and Joseph, who is a representative of Christ, what then do we see here? 
I would argue, as F.F. Bruce does as well and other commentators, that what we have here is demonstrated for us a picture of the first and second coming of Christ. He sent them out on their first visit. If you recall the story, what happens on their first visit? They don't see Joseph and embrace him and recognize him, do they? They missed it. They failed to see that this was Joseph, that this was their brother, this was the one who was lost. They missed it, just as the Jews had done with Christ. They had missed it. They had not seen that he was God's chosen one, that he was the Messiah sent by God to save his people, and they had rejected him. But what do we know to be true about Christ's coming? That he's coming a second time, that he is coming again. But the thing is, church family, when Christ comes a second time, no one will be ignorant as to who he is. Each and every person will see and know and understand who God is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's been stated before, and I think rightly so, that it's a reality that either we will recognize who Christ is, worship him in his glory, and bow the knee to him willingly when he comes again, or when he comes again, we will be faced with that reality and will be brought to our knees in submission before a holy God in judgment. There will be none who stand before Christ on that day ignorant of who he is or what he has accomplished. I think this is what we see represented here in the book of Acts in Stephen's speech. Again, further indicting them, though not very pointedly yet, right? He hasn't quite got to the point yet. That's why they're still allowing him to speak. Everything he's saying is true. But this is what he's beginning to weave together that he's ultimately going to hit home at the end of his sermon, as we've already read. Then what do we see in verse 14 and 15? Again, this further story of Joseph, the people of God, left this sacred space of the promised land, didn't they? In verse 14 and 15, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. Again, this is kind of a, a thing you would hope that people would just see these Jews. It's like, how can you not see this? The people just left the promised land. Was God's presence left there in the promised land when they left and went into Egypt to survive? Absolutely not. We know from the story of Joseph, God's presence was already there and is always with his people. The point is made over and over and over again. In so doing, when they left the land, they did not leave behind the presence and the glory of God. God was with them. Neither were the promises of God lost in the pagan land. In fact, as we see the scriptures so clearly demonstrating for us, the promises of God were fulfilled through this sojourning, through the time of slavery, through the times of exile, through all the hardship that the people of God faced. Never once did that begin to nullify or undo or leave behind the promises of God, but they were fulfilled through it. As God declared to Abraham, your people are going to be enslaved 400 years. It was a part of God's preordained will, his purpose, his sovereignty, that his people would endure this affliction, but that through it, his promises would be accomplished. And indeed, they have been in Christ Jesus. What has Stephen done in his speech so far? He's begun to expose the nation's 
idolatrous attachment to the temple. This this attachment to the temple as the only sacred space, limiting the presence of God, confining him to this one place so that the temple becomes equated with God. This is the problem that Stephen is now addressing and is seeking to break down. Because of their idolatrous attachment to the temple and their belief that the presence of God was found exclusively here, they missed the blessing of the actual presence of God, didn't they? For indeed, when was God most present with his people? When Christ appeared. When Christ came and was with his people and walked among them. And yet they rejected him. They missed it. More than that, they killed God's righteous one, the Messiah. They not only missed, but rejected and killed. Stephen has not said that the temple serves no purpose. He has not said that the temple is stupid. He simply is pointing out that the temple, while designated by God for a particular purpose, and useful in that purpose to help us worship God, see Him truly and rightly, as God chose to meet with His people in this way, the temple is no longer required because the focal point of God's dwelling with his people is not located there anymore. Just as it wasn't in the time of Abraham, so now his presence is no longer focused and centralized here. But rather, it has been shifted to and fulfilled in Christ. And God now dwells within his people. And so the temple, while it served its purpose, while it is not to be denigrated or, or called stupid, it has been made obsolete. It no longer is needed because it has been fulfilled by Christ. So here's the question that maybe we might need to address today. Is what do we do with this sermon? As believers here today, we don't have a temple, right? And I don't even think most of us are tempted to create a temple. Go and build some place and claim that God is here. And frankly, I, I don't know that any of us, maybe some of us, have, have made a trip to Jerusalem even. We probably recognize and, and see like, okay, we don't really have an issue with understanding that God doesn't dwell exclusively in the temple. So, I don't know, does this serve any purpose for us today? I would argue that it does, as you probably guessed. Every page, every text, every word of scripture has application for us today. I think we need to make sure that we not miss the point undergirding the false idea that they had about the temple. Because their false understanding of the temple, their idolatry surrounding the temple, was rooted in a false idea about the presence of God. In their case, they believed that God's presence was confined to this place. But I would ask, do we understand the presence of God rightly in our lives? And here's what I mean when I say this. I think while we don't struggle so much with confining God to a singular place, that is, the temple, I think we as believers, even if we wouldn't say it with our words, in our actions, have certain spaces that we seclude God's presence, as though he is not present there, as though he is not in that place. And I would say we don't need to look any further than our own hearts, our own secret sins that we commit. The things that, in the way we act, we, be, we behave as though God is not present. 
that God is not with us. He is everywhere. He's all present. As the catechism question says, where is God? He is everywhere. But then we are perfectly comfortable committing sin in private, committing sin in our hearts, as though God's presence isn't there. Either that or we don't understand the holiness of God, the gravity, the weight of our sin. And oftentimes that is the case, isn't it? That we fail to firmly grasp both the presence of God and the holiness of God and therefore the weight of our sin. And we are so easy to be swayed by the devil, to be swayed to temptation, forgetting God's presence ever with us. Secret sins dominate the lives of many believers today. And if we're honest, each and every one of us in here knows the struggle is real. That it's easy to forget God's presence as we, are, as we are being tempted into these things. As even in our hearts and our minds, we are being led towards temptation, forgetting that God is with us. And that when we sin in this way, it is not hidden. It might be hidden from our church family, from our pastors, from our family. But this is absolutely an affront to God in the very presence of God. And so we ought to repent. As I said, this is a hard sermon given to people with hard hearts, but it is good to hear hard sermons sometimes. In fact, this hard sermon was instrumental in the conversion of who? If you know the story, you already know who's about to appear at the end of this speech. First time we see his name mentioned in the book of Acts. Who is it? Saul. Saul is here in this moment, hearing this speech delivered by Stephen. Something that I believe ultimately God used instrumentally in the conversion of Saul to become who we now know today to be Paul. And in that, we have hope, right? You see, at this point, hearing the condemnation, hearing, hearing the weight of our sin and the way in which we have denigrated God and to an extent even blasphemed God by mistreating and misrepresenting his presence as though he wasn't with us, it would be easy for us now to just be weighed down with our sin and give up because we know how difficult it is to live perfect, obedient lives. It's so difficult, none of us can do it. And so I would encourage you, church family, today, as I, and I'm, I'm telling you and I'm calling you to repent of your sin, the secret sin in your life that you think no one else knows about but that God is seeing every single moment. I'm calling you to repent of that. But I'm calling you not to then stay in a state of guilt or despair, but to see the hope that is offered in the gospel, even in the life of Saul. One who is here taking part in the murder of Stephen at the end of this speech is one who would go on to be saved by the grace of God. To move from a terrorist to his greatest evangelist to the Gentiles. And take hope in that for yourselves. As I've said, Stephen got cut short in this sermon. There was more to come surely if these people had not risen up and killed him. Made him the first martyr in the book of Acts. There was more to come. And let me encourage you, this is what the more to come was. Though we fail in representing the presence of God rightly and living as though he is truly with us each and every day, the song we sang, Cling to the Crucified, he will sustain he will glorify us. He will show us mercy. He will show us grace. Because the cool thing is, God is not ignorant of our sin. 
and he saves us nonetheless. If we were to be put into a state of despair and thinking that no one could be saved unless they perfectly obeyed and lived as though Jesus was physically standing next to us all the time, because we would certainly live differently in that case, wouldn't we? Jesus were always right next to us. Well, we know the reality that we who belong to him, he is with us every moment of every day. Nothing we do is in secret. So therefore, we can't believe that if we don't live perfectly in obedience to him, that we can't be saved. No, the gospel says otherwise. That if that were the case, no one would be saved. So we trust and we hope in the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ that the price he paid on the cross is good to forgive us of our sins even as we see our sin rightly and truly now. And it is from here that we repent of our sin, that we turn from our sin, and that we recognize the reality that had been lost to the Israelites, been lost to the Jews, that is God is ever present with us everywhere we are. We see Stephen building this case, making this accusation, and it's going to come to the head that we need to already be at, that all of these things are fulfilled in Christ. He is our Messiah. He represents the presence of God to us. When he is revealed to us, we have seen the Father as he has told us. And let us rejoice in that. Let's pray.